You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses and Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is the last lecture, Lecture 12, given in Dornach on the 14th of April, 1919. I particularly wish to talk to you today about what, based on the impulses of our time, on the distress of our time, needs to be said to humanity in general through my book on the social question. The book is called Toward Social Renewal, Basic Issues of the Social Question. You will have seen from our considerations over the last few days, which were basically a continuation and elaboration of the themes we have worked on here for many weeks, that what I am about to say precisely with regard to the social question is not a kind of side issue next to everything else that pulsates through our whole spiritual scientific endeavor. Indeed, the way the matter must more properly be seen is that this spiritual scientific endeavor, by its very nature, develops an understanding of the needs and challenges of our present time and the immediate future, and that the fundamental character precisely of our time is that the distress of our time can be radically helped only through spiritual impulses. Everything else that might be tried, I have stressed this from the most varied perspectives, could at most be nothing more than a surrogate. Also the external measures that ought to be carried out will have to be of such a nature that I will not say a particular form of spiritual science, but at least a spiritual life that pierces through to the real spirit would have to be possible within the social order. The reason for this necessity is that due to the development of humanity, the person of the present time is in a very particular situation. I have described this situation of the modern person from many different angles. Today I will mention once more that Fundamentally speaking, all our reflections have led us to see how through the way they are inwardly organized, people of the present time simply find themselves in a certain dichotomy. We can easily regard the human individual in his whole being as a unity, but he is not a unity. We know that he is a threefold being. And during the various epochs of the post-Atlantean period, the three facets of our human makeup have related differently to the whole external world, to the physical, soul, and spiritual external world, and to our inner being. We can look at the threefold human being in two ways. Let's do this schematically. We'll simply place the three members of the human being, one on top of the other, see diagram. Whatever terms we give to them, whether according to their physical aspect, nerve sense system, rhythmic system, metabolic limbic system, or according to their spiritual aspect, the intuitive spiritual aspect, the inspired soul aspect, the imaginative bodily aspect. Whether we proceed with different words, such as I have presented from the spiritual perspective in my book titled Theosophy, 
or whether we take a physical projection of this threefold human being, as I have demonstrated in my last book titled Riddles of the Soul, all perspectives show us that the human is a threefold being. But this threefold being of man is, if I can put it like this, not threefold in a simple way. Man is a complicated being, and the threefoldness in him is also not so simply threefold, but rather we can say, in a certain sense, the human is a double being, a twofold being, and the boundary between the two parts goes right through the middle of the rhythmic system, through the respiratory and heart system. In our present phase of evolution, the way things stand is such that human inner nature really only lives in the metabolic system and in the lower portions of the lung-heart system or rhythmic system. Here the modern person is actually essentially an inner being. By contrast, in the upper portion of the heart and respiratory system and in the nerve sense system, people today rely on a strong externality. You'll see what I mean presently. People perceive the outer world through their senses. They process the outer world with their intellect. They also breathe in the world with their lungs. People take in what comes to them from outside through perceptions, through intellectual processing, through the in-breath. But with regard to what comes into them from outside, people are in a certain sense just a kind of residence. Actually, this upper portion of the human being has all of external nature in it, the colors, external sounds, the stars, the clouds, and even the air in the breathing process. And you yourselves are actually just the residents for these external things. In ancient times, people still found something else in this externality that was related to their inner being. They found elemental spirits and also divine spiritual beings of the higher hierarchies. They spoke about these nature spirits in their mythologies that were wiser than the scientific wisdom of the present day. But they have gone from human perception. Today people only perceive the sense perceptible and process it. Here they only carry the outer world in themselves. We frequently pay too little attention to how little of ourselves is in what we carry in us as our perception of the external world or also of what remains of the external world in our memory. When you walk up the hill in the morning or at midday and see the Gertianum and go down again carrying an image in yourselves of the Gertianum and everything you have seen here, you seemingly have something in yourselves. But what is in you is only a reflection for the actual Gertianum is still on this hill. Everything you saw is also still on this hill. In this part of the human being that I have demarcated here in the diagram, you are the residence of all that. And people today are so poor in spirit precisely because they no longer find the spirit in this externality. There were indeed times in the evolution of the earth when if people had come up the hill and seen something like this Gertianum, the effect of certain things on them as they walked down again would not have been like a fantasy, not like an inner mysticism, but like a world of facts. Like something they had seen, such as the paintings or the like, they would have taken with them in their soul those spirit beings 
which would have slipped out to them from every nook and cranny, and which had participated in the creative work of the people here. But this is past now for people, as though the elemental and spiritual beings have fled from external nature. Outer nature is despirited, and thus also this part of man's interior. And what remains for our inner being is only the lower part of the chest and the metabolic organism with the limbs. This is what, in this period of human evolution, the externalized people of the present, if they do not begin to become interested in spirituality, refer to as their inner being. The people are on the very brink of where they do indeed speak about their inner being, but what they mean by this inner being is nothing more than their metabolism, and at most the correspondence that respiration and the cardiac rhythm have with their metabolism. One should have no delusions about this. We should be clear that when people come along today and talk about having difficulties in their inner life, This is just a verbal expression for an irregularity of some kind in their metabolism. One person is cheerful, the other is grumpy, due to their insides. One is passionate, the other humorous. Fundamentally, this is all a result of the metabolism, and at most the rebound of the respiratory and heart systems on the metabolism. Many people talk today about their inner state. They talk about their inner needs. They talk about their soul not being able to manage one thing or another. In fact, it is their stomach and their intestines that can't manage. And what they say about their emotional life is basically just putting into words what is going on in their metabolism. And the situation is that, of course, people do not want to admit the truth and say, my stomach, my intestines, spleen, liver, or whatever is not functioning properly. But rather, they say, I have this or that emotional difficulty. That sounds better, more genteel for many people. They consider this less materialistic. But for someone who sees things in accordance with truth, this is just dishonest. For we find ourselves today at the stage of development in which human nature separates into two distinct parts. And if you ask, what can be of help in this situation, there is only one aid for modern people, to break free from themselves through an interest in the affairs of humankind, through a real interest in what concerns all people of the present time, and to pay as little attention as possible to the irregularities, broadly speaking, of their metabolism that are so prevalent today. When people can get away from talking about themselves by developing a wide-ranging interest which can only be achieved by taking spiritual science seriously. Only then can well-being pour out over the present human generation. One can really experience things today that are characteristic of this. I was recently at the League of Nations Congress in Bern, where everything was spoken about that it is unnecessary to speak about, because it leads nowhere, and where the most vital things today were not spoken about but I don't mention this as even the most important thing. The most important thing I wish to mention is a certain form in speaking that was apparent in almost all the speakers. In these speakers, in at least every third sentence, 
there was the little word I, or me, my. I am of the opinion. I consider. It seems to me this or that is needed. I love this or that. You can hear this in almost every sentence. And people get angry if one doesn't go along with this tone. If one speaks out of objectivity, if one forms one's sentences in a way that keeps the objective content in view and doesn't give one's opinion, doesn't give what one loves, then people say one's way of speaking is authoritarian and presumptuous. The greatest presumption, of course, is when someone has the word I on their lips in every third sentence. But people have unlearned their sense for this presumption. They think it is smarter for someone to talk only about themselves and find it highly immodest and presumptuous when someone tries to speak out of objectivity. They have a dim feeling that he is claiming to know something other than what is in his personal opinion. And claiming to know something other than one's own opinion is seen today as a great sin. But, oh, these personal opinions. Someone versed in spiritual science would often like to characterize such an assembly precisely from his spiritual scientific perspective. He listens to a speaker of the kind that utters the word I in every third sentence. I think, I am of the opinion that, I think this, I ask you to consider. He then talks about the superstate, the supra-parliament, and leaves the podium. One with spiritual scientific insight says to himself, that man has a liver problem. There is something wrong in his liver, and it is his metabolism talking out of him. Another speaker goes up, speaks formally in a similar way, and then retreats. The man probably has gallstones. A third one has a tendency to gastric problems. These things become significant in an age pulsating with materialism, where the free soul, independent of matter, does not speak, but the body does. And it is often the body that speaks today. But people are still accustomed to using the old words for their bodily indispositions. One who sees into things spiritual, scientifically, would rather that people spoke not about the Übermensch, the superhuman, but about the lower stomach. I don't mean Nietzsche, of course, but of others who, following Nietzsche, have spoken about the Übermensch. They would then represent reality more accurately than with what they actually say. This is not pessimism, my dear friends. It is simply the world of present-day facts. And people of the present time are compelled to be untruthful, for the simple reason that they would be ashamed to give an account of the facts. And there is even a longing today to give oneself up to this aspect of the human being, which is actually only physical man. It is a truth in our time that perhaps the reason we do not have a Moliere who wrote titled The Imaginary Invalid is because we would need too many Molières. For there is a veritable enthusiasm for being sick in those people who have time to be sick about anything else. The people who don't have time to be sick mostly pay no attention to the conditions which, in those who have the time to be sick, are sufficient reason to feel ill. The devastating effects of materialism must not only be sought where materialism is spoken about or where people speak materialistically. The devastating effects of materialism are evident at many levels. 
and all the talk today about the spirit is sometimes nothing more than pure materialism, because for many people this talk of the spirit is nothing more than a narcotic for their stolid materiality. People today lack the will for activity, for real inner exertion, and all external exertion must today come from inner exertion. This is the reason why the bourgeoisie are still so much at zero in the face of the social question that has been coming to the fore over the past seventy years. An immense materialism in the most varied forms has taken hold of people, and particularly of those circles whose task it has been in modern times to turn to the spiritual. This is what we have to know about the basic impulse of our time, about what is living in our time. Everything else would be surrendering to illusion. Spiritual science is of such great significance for modern people because it gets them away from themselves. But it has to be taken hold of properly. We can't allow another illusion to arise in connection with spiritual science. A quality so pervasive today due to materialism could easily find its way into spiritual science, and that is superficiality. If what is trying to awaken an interest in spiritual science is grasped only superficially by people, that would be something that could really harden them in themselves, could really thrust them into themselves. Nothing can help here other than going back again and again to what does not have to do with us personally, but is the content of our spiritual science and to approach the things that are the content of our spiritual science as objectively as possible, and when the most subjective things are spoken about, not to take them subjectively. On this point, just think how clearly we need to resist the most obvious temptations. When I spoke here recently about how people today are only capable of development from outside up to their twenty-eighth year, and that development then ceases just at the point of the intellectual soul and the eye, and is not able to attain to these, and that people therefore move toward a certain inner emptiness, this is an important truth for the present time. It is important to know this. It is important to accept this as an inner experience. But it is detrimental to wonder afterward, quote, Am I perhaps one of those who, from their twenty-eighth year onward, has not properly developed their intellectual soul? It is precisely the most subjective things which relate to what is of the greatest importance that should be taken objectively. We should not look to see whether we are one to whom something like this could happen. We should be able to disregard ourselves when it comes to the most important human truths, and be able to look at the era, at humanity, not always think in an egotistical way of ourselves. This is what characterizes our time and what makes it so difficult to spread ideas today that relate to impulses of supreme importance for the development of our age. People are unable to develop interest out of the basic mood, as it were, that I have described. The ideas just remain sensations for them, They don't grab them sufficiently, don't spur them sufficiently into activity. This is what has to be said, especially now when a kind of transition is taking place for all those who have had a genuine interest in spiritual science. 
Up to this point, you have had literature that relates to the inner development of the human being and to knowledge about the spiritual world, and which has spoken in such a way to people that they can grasp the world, their relationship to the world, the sole spiritual aspect of their relationship to other people, from the most varied points of view. And now this spiritual science is producing a certain trend that talks about the social question, about the healing of the social organism. Parenthesis. This is, of course, just a side branch. The greater body of spiritual science carries on, for it is precisely this greater body of spiritual science that is preeminently necessary for other areas as well. Close parenthesis. Here, spiritual science is adopting a trend that must not be received inactively, passively, or else it will miss its goal and purpose. And it will now become evident how many of us who have absorbed spiritual science over the preceding years have made ourselves sufficiently ripe to have a clear comprehension, above all, of what is to be understood now by the social question. For a clear, impartial, unsentimental grasp of what is articulated in my book which is to appear shortly, on the essential points of the social question is what matters. This is something about which we will now have to pass a certain trial. Up to now, if one studied spiritual science, one could still be a good spiritual scientist without concerning oneself with what was going on out there in life. And indeed, we have two phenomena in our anthroposophical movement that we should actually contemplate. On the one hand, we have very good anthroposophists who, despite knowing a huge amount about cosmic evolution, about the makeup of the human being, about reincarnation, destiny, and karma, have no idea about the practical aspects of life, have no idea about the reality of life. They are individuals who have sought something in anthroposophy to keep them away from this reality of life. Indeed, those to whom what I have just said applies have no notion that it is even referring to them. After all, everyone naively regards themselves as practical in life. So this is the one phenomenon that we have amongst us. The other phenomenon is sectarianism in one form or another. There is a deep tendency, particularly in movements related to the spiritual, to engage in sectarianism. Whether this sectarianism develops from small cliques that emerge with a sectarian character, even though in very inferior things, or whether sectarianism is engaged indirectly, is not the point. What is the point is to really understand that the anthroposophically oriented spiritual scientific movement that we intend here must be imbued with objectivity, a non-personal quality. This has always been a difficulty in our movement, that the personal element, usually without people realizing it, has been confused with what is objective and factual. People genuinely believe when they get together in a clique of a larger or smaller size that they have a completely factual and objective interest. Certainly they genuinely believe this, for they don't notice that principally they are actually following their own wishes because of their relationship with someone else who is interested in spiritual science because they want a connection with one person or another and the like. People have no notion of this. They live in the genuine belief that they are being objective. But this sectarianism, this cliquishness, 
is precisely what has led to the terrible situation where public presentations, information about spiritual science given publicly in whatever area, is not judged on its own merits, but according to what a society, the anthroposophical society, has made and is making of it. If we point to the worst damage and the most awful swamp plants of the ilk of Siling, we must never forget when we look for the cause of the matter that swamp plants such as this are bred, cultivated, and pampered by the cliquishness and sectarianism that has developed widely in the anthroposophical movement over the last seventeen or eighteen years. And what is going on in this anthroposophical movement is projected in many ways onto anthroposophy, because many members sin against the most significant impulse of our time, individualism in the field of the spirit. How often do we hear, quote, we anthroposophists, we theosophists want this or that? How awful that we only have three basic tenets, close quote. We don't need basic tenets at all, for they are not what matters. We need truths, not summarizing tenets. And these truths are only for the individual person, for the individuality. How often have I said that the society is just something for public view, but what we are doing is not about the society. We really have to take these things seriously. This is so necessary precisely today, because if what is to come into the world through our efforts regarding the social question, if this were also carried by sectarianism or cliquishness or any form of small-mindedness, such as I have described today, our work would be harmed most terribly. We really need to develop a very broad way of thinking here. We really need to look for an entry into real practical life. That's what's important. When I say something about these things, please take it only in the truest spirit of friendship. Don't think that I am wanting to be derogatory in any respect, but I am impelled to give a warning, a sound warning, before the social aspect of our work becomes a matter for all the members, which it really ought to become. But before this happens, urgently to warn you not to allow sectarianism, small-mindedness, anything that has a narrow horizon, that doesn't arise from clear thinking, to interfere in this social thinking. Do not allow this, but strive more and more to base your thinking on the experience and reality of life. I was greatly astonished recently when a kind of motto reached my ears, which must have arisen here from one quarter or another, that the social ideas I speak about in my lectures ought to be practically implemented in life. But what was meant was the implementation of these practical ideas into the most impractical sphere possible. We must really not do what has led our times into the most terrible confusion and damage namely, confusing real practicality with illusory practicality in life. What was said in that situation was so impractical, was thought about in such a sectarian way, was so lacking in the will really to engage in practical life, that I won't go into it any further. I would ask you to look at what is happening in real life today, to learn to know the basis from which the various statements I make arise. For do you believe it is a light-hearted theory 
to talk about the labor force as though they were some kind of commodity? This is something that can only be said when one has repeatedly seen such things to be the most characteristic of the situation in real life. And so it is also with other matters. What is important today is clear, sharp understanding of the realities of life. So, really, sign ira, and with the request not to take these things personally, I should like, for example, to say the following. I have been asked whether threefolding couldn't be realized in our anthroposophical society, economic life, legal life, spiritual life. Certainly one can articulate something like this, even if one is deeply engaged in our movement, if one has a genuine and profound attitude toward our movement. But when somebody says this, it is as though they haven't grasped the basic impetus of our movement at all. People haven't understood what I have said about the social question. If they imagine we could divide up our society in a threefold way, like a sect. So, what are the three branches of a healthy social order? In the first place, there is the economic system. Well, my dear friends, do you want to do the very worst thing and practice sectarianism by having our own economy inside the society within the greater economy outside? Do you not want to understand that one cannot separate oneself off in an egotistical way, even in a group egotism, and disregard everything else? After all, you engage economically with the other economy of this geographical area. You get your milk, cheese, vegetables, the things you need, from an economic body from which you cannot isolate yourself. Truly, you cannot reform the times by withdrawing from them. If someone wants to make a society such as ours into an economic body, it seems to me like someone with a large family saying, I'll begin threefolding in my own family. These ideas are too serious, too far-reaching to be distorted into the various forms of petty bourgeois sectarianism that have always existed. They must be thought of in connection with the whole of humanity. If you tried to establish a group egotistical economy for a sect, you would separate yourself entirely from real practical thinking with regard to the economic circulation in the world. In the life of law, just imagine establishing a legislative state within our society. If you stole something, it would be completely irrelevant if three people here convened to judge the theft. An external court would still take you and judge you. In matters of law, you would truly not be able to separate yourself off from external institutions. And now, my dear friends, the spiritual life. For as long as an anthroposophical society has existed, or ever since it belonged with its anthroposophical content to the theosophical society, has there ever been anything in the activity of this society that was in the slightest degree dependent on any kind of state or political organization? from the first day of this society's existence, with regard to the spiritual life, which is our chief task, our ideal has been fulfilled. Don't you see that from the beginning this ideal has been fulfilled with regard to what we actually are? Do you think this should be done only now in the anthroposophical society? Has this anthroposophical society ever received a subsidy from any state? Are its teachers employed by the state? 
Has not everything been fulfilled in this anthroposophical society that could be wished for by external spiritual organizations? In this respect, isn't it precisely the practical ideal? And do you want to come along now and reform it in this direction? You can't have understood what sort of society you have been in for so many years if you only now want to realize the spiritual third here in this society. Look precisely at what we have been able to be, at what we were able to rescue by a whisker, freedom in spiritual research and teaching, at least in those individuals who did not ask to be paid by the state for what they taught here. Look at this at least as a kind of starting point for other things. See what is real and don't overlook it in your thinking. In my book titled Toward Social Renewal, it is mentioned as an evil in present times, inherited from the past, that the so-called practical people in life today overlook in their thought and speech what is most important. Must this evil spread amongst us too, that in what we say we overlook what is most to the point? It cannot be our task to bring the free spiritual life here, but our task can be that you take this out into the world, explain to people that all spiritual life must be of this nature, must have this sort of constitution. What is most important is to see immediate reality. In this sense, what I argue concerning the social question must be understood in the first place by anthroposophists. In the anthroposophical society, we should at least avoid spreading cranky ideas under the motto of wanting to make practicable what is represented here. Take seriously what has run like a basic thread through the lectures of the last weeks, or even perhaps of the last months. Take most particularly seriously the fact that our present time makes it necessary for people to adopt a new attitude toward life that it is not enough just to absorb new thoughts, but that we find the possibility of approaching life in a new way, that we avoid everything that pushes us toward isolation and segregation. Take seriously above all that in all three branches of its so-called culture, humanity has wandered into a real cul-de-sac. How could this cul-de-sac be more evident than in the chaotic and devastating effects in East and Central Europe? This is the result of what people have been accustomed to feel, think, and believe for decades and centuries. The situation in Russia is not only a result of the war. That was only the culmination. Rather, it is the result of what people have thought, felt, and willed for a long, long time, and which compelled one to describe it as a kind of social cancer. So what is it that is most lacking at the present time? What is most lacking at the present time is a proper judgment of reality. What is most lacking at the present time is a proper social enlightenment. This is what the bourgeoisie have neglected most, a proper social enlightenment. People don't have a social sense. Everyone knows only themselves. That is why judgment becomes so short-sighted. When someone today speaks about introducing the economic life into the anthroposophical society, the most real thing I could imagine from such a statement would be if someone were to buy a cow, look after and milk it, thereby produce something, and deal with this product in the appropriate way. That would not be sectarianism in our society, because the economic life 
is primarily about the means of increasing productivity, of taking account of people's essential needs. A start was made in this direction at one time, but was unsuccessful due to the individual involved. You will recall we made a start with Herr von R. by producing bread, not on the basis of production, but on the basis of consumption, which can be the only healthy basis. We tried, first of all, to get consumers, which would have been quite possible in a society, and the production would have been set up according to this number of consumers. That was a really practical beginning. It failed to work only because Herr von R. was, or is, not a practical man. But the idea could have been realized if Herr von R. had been practical. This would have been a practical idea associated with the anthroposophical society only insofar as the society comprises a number of consumers. It is about keeping focused on our task and not on the anthroposophical society and not turning the society into an isolated sect. With regard to the external conditions that are the basis of production and a variety of other things, you will not get far with the ideas in my book on the social question if you do not understand them on a large scale. For reform of the economic system is connected, after all, with the practicalities of economics. One must even understand milking, and it is more important to be able to milk cows than to introduce some kind of business into a small sect, but then naturally still get your milk from outside. The point in our case is that we see where the impulse of the present time needs to be. What is most important at present? You can set up all the businesses you like. If you are able, go to Russia, do what you want there, set up the best and most idealistic things, or go to Germany, to Austria, to Hungary, and so on. After ten years, all these things will have failed if they manage to last even as much as ten years. That is the situation today. With the thoughts people have today, you could set up the most ideal initiative, and after ten years it will have failed. Of that you can be absolutely certain. It won't always happen as rapidly as in Munich, where one council is replaced by another and then by an even more radical one and so on. But any initiative you organize today, which seems to you to be good and healthy, will go out of the window if the same ideas remain in people's heads that have been there for centuries and are still haunting them today. These ideas are of no more use. People will simply have to accept that they must rethink and relearn things, that new ideas must really become part of their soul's inner being. This can't be done overnight. One can't immediately set up things overnight with the new ideas. But you can take the ideas that are in my book because they are practical and differentiate them into their most extreme areas of specialism. You could set up, let's say, a dairy along the lines of the book. But if you don't set up just one dairy where you yourself milk your cows and which on its own would not have much social effect if all the other dairies carried on in the same old way. So if you don't set up just one dairy but a number of them, you would need people for that. But they have the old ideas in their heads, and these enterprises would soon either fail or revert to the old forms, and you'd be back to how things were. 
This shows you what is the most important thing today. The most important thing today is not starting this or that initiative. You can, of course, set up good initiatives. I will not tempt you to set up bad ones. But I just want to make you aware that even with the best initiative, you will not change the times. It can be done in certain areas, such as I mentioned about the bread, or how we have done it with our printed matter. So, how did we start with this printed matter? At first I spoke to a very small group in Berlin. This group then grew bigger and bigger. As the group increased, a need arose to have in book form what had been spoken. Readers were there before the books were printed. Look at the theories of social ideas of knowledgeable individuals. One of the fundamental evils of our social order is the continuous crises arising from sporadic overproduction, when production runs wild. The very worst example of this is the book trade. Just think of all the books that were produced in the book trade with editions of 500 copies and sometimes more, of which barely 50 copies are sold. And what a difference there is between a book where the edition is completely sold out and a book that sells perhaps less than 50 copies. Typesetters and printers have been employed and paper used all for nothing. This is all blown away by the wind. This is an abuse of human manpower. The moment you produce in excess, when the consumers do not exist to justify the use of the human workforce, you must be aware that you are misusing that workforce. For the use of human labor is only justified by needs, by actual needs that exist. It is not the content but the need that must exist. The utilization of the human workforce is only justified when one can see beforehand that what people work at will be for the good of other people. In certain areas, where we could work in a reforming way, we have done so. We have even had to resort not to overproduction but to underproduction. When, like other journals, we ceased publishing our journal titled Lucifer Gnosis, the world could only have thought we did so due to lack of readers. Precisely at the moment when we had to close it down because of other demands on me was the time when it would have had one and a half times as many, then twice as many, then three times as many readers as it had before. We had to decide on underproduction, not overproduction. Thus crises were avoided in a healthy manner. The book trade is in perpetual crisis. Looking at the statistics on unsold books, we see that books are produced that can't be sold because nothing is done to ensure their sale. People sometimes have a certain insight about this. At one time in the 80s, that is the 1880s, I had a conversation with Edward von Hartmann, about books on the theory of knowledge. It was during the time when I was writing my short book titled Truth and Science, which is now out of print. Not a single copy of that was printed in vain. No copy had to be pulped, and so no human labor was wasted. Edward von Hartmann said, quote, People publish their works on the theory of knowledge in print runs of 500 copies, but we can show that in Germany we have at most 60 readers of them, the books should just be hectographed and sent out to the few readers who are really interested in them. At that time it was evident that there were no more readers than this of works on the theory of knowledge. Don't take it amiss that I mention this purely economic question 
concerning anthroposophical literature here. These things have nothing to do with content, with spiritual value, but they can illustrate what is actually meant and what is important at the present time, namely that a healthy association of consumers must first be established, and production does not just blindly churn out things regardless. Truth should not be a matter of human preferences. This relates to the answer I gave on one occasion to two Catholic priests in Colmar after a lecture I had given there on, quote, Bible and wisdom, close quote, and which I mentioned again recently. The two priests came to me after the lecture and said that they had no particular objections to the content, but the way I spoke was a different matter. For the way they spoke from the pulpit was intended for all the people. The way I spoke was not for all people, but only for those with a particular education. I answered them, quote, What you or I think about how one should speak to all people is not the point. We might perhaps have all sorts of interesting ideas about it, but that is not what matters. What matters is what the facts are asking for. And here I ask you, does everyone still go to you in church? You can't assert that. So for those who remain away, and who nevertheless have a right to hear about Christ, it is for them that I speak, and there are enough of them today. Close quote. These are facts. But the old bourgeois education, which is completely shut up in itself, still contradicts them. It persuades itself what is right, how things should be, how things should be done. But this is absolutely not how things should be done for life. The important thing for life is that one observes that here is this and there is that and determines what one has to do from what is. This only appears to be trivialities, for life today sins against these trivialities constantly. What is needed above all is a different mindset. Even the insight has faded that it is necessary to see how this culture, which is so highly praised, has borne death within itself. Don't think that the current radical socialist movements have ruined culture. Culture has ruined itself. The culture that the upper stratum had has led it into nullity, is decaying due to itself. This upper stratum did not ensure that the lower proletarian strata, which are following after them, knew something sensible about social institutions, and now they wonder that they rise up in their lack of social knowledge and usher in nothing but chaos. The situation is indeed grave, and the ideas I have felt compelled to articulate in my book on the social question flow from this assessment of just how grave things are for the whole modern world. This book will only be properly understood when people realize that no matter how good the initiatives might be that we set up, nothing can be done with people that have the ideas of our current time in their heads. Above all, heads must be filled with different ideas. So what is the genuine, real and true practical task? To spread enlightenment, my dear friends. To spread enlightenment and, above all, to teach people how to change their thinking. This is the appeal that goes out to each and every one of you, to bring enlightenment into people's heads. Not to think of cranky, isolated reforms, but to shed enlightenment in a universal way about what is essential. Then people will have to change. 
the thoughts and sensibilities in people's souls will have to change. It's about taking these ideas to wherever it is possible to take them. This is the practical thing to do. This is what it means to implement these ideas practically. With every quarter of a person, excuse the expression, that you win over to these ideas, something is achieved. And the most is achieved when you win over people who work in a particular field. As I said recently, it is gratifying to see writers among the signatories to the call. But one bank manager who really understands the call and works in its spirit is worth more than ten writers who put their name to it. It is a matter of taking hold of life where it can be taken hold of. And today this can only happen by spreading enlightenment, by working in an enlightening way. For what people need most urgently is knowledge about the conditions necessary for a healthy social organism. If people do not learn to know the conditions for a healthy social organism, they will carry on destroying the old social organism for as long as destruction is possible. Naturally, this can only go on up to a certain point. Everything that is done now without these new ideas is depleting the old order, is stripping the old order. This has started in Russia and will spread from there. What matters is to build things up, but it is only possible to build things up today if people understand how the building up is to be carried out. For we are living in the age of consciousness-soul development. This means in the age of conscious individuals, in the age when people must know what they are doing. My book was written in this spirit, and I should like to see it understood in this spirit. I should like to entrust it to you in this spirit. Its intention is simply to serve the times. It tries to articulate what has to be articulated out of the spirit of the times. Cliques and sectarian tendencies in our own society have done enough to ensure that when anthroposophy is spoken about, people assume all kinds of ghosts and specters and the like. But the spirit is not sought here by always just talking about the spirit. We can leave that to Herr Seitschik or Herr Förster, but rather it is a matter of the spirit being in a position to really dive down into practical life, to understand how practical life has to be managed. Those who want to conceive of the spirit only in a shadowy form floating above life have a bad belief. So you yourselves must turn away more and more from turning away from life. You need to seek more and more to really understand life, to look into life. Otherwise the same phenomena I have been speaking about will keep on arising. The examples of this could be multiplied a hundred, a thousandfold. A lady came to me and said, quote, Someone approached me wanting to borrow money, but he has a brewery. He will use the money to brew beer. I surely cannot support the brewing of beer. Close quote. Well, it was well and good that in this narrow circle the lady didn't wish to support beer making because she was an abstainer and didn't want to be abstinent just for herself, but wanted to make propaganda supporting abstinence. I had to answer her by saying, quote, But you have money in the bank which gives you your living. Do you have any idea how many breweries are financed by your bank's money? Have you any idea of all the things that are done by the bank? Do you think they are all in keeping with the idea you have regarding the amount you might lend to this beer brewer? 
But aren't you just as involved when the money you've deposited in the bank is transferred into the economy? Close quote. Do you really think that it is oriented toward life when one does nothing but judge life from the narrowest circle? When one doesn't engage in looking at life with the broadest sweep? But that is just the point. Our anthroposophical society is not a field of experimentation, but is meant to be a core for everything good that is to come to humankind. With regard to the social question, it is a matter above all of a broad stream of enlightenment flowing out over the social need. You will be acting in a practical and skillful way in life if you spread these things, but you must also really try to spread them in a way that takes life into account and doesn't stay fixed in a narrow perspective. I hope none of you gets the dubious idea that old theories of national economics are being passed on here in order to teach people national economics. People don't introduce anything here today of the nature of the experts' national economics, for those are all lumber-room ideas of the oldest sort. Don't think you are learning to think in national economic terms when you absorb the practicable ideas in the didactic way they are taught in the universities. Don't devise any programs that appear to put into practice what I lecture, but which are nothing more than awfully grinning old bourgeois masks. Let us stand on the ground of the great challenges of our time. Let us look above all at society in these challenges of the times. I felt the need to say this to you now, as we are about to travel to Germany and many tasks will present themselves. Nevertheless, we hope that we will be away for a much shorter period this time than otherwise, for we are living in a time when we should actually never make plans and have projects too far ahead. We can only say that individuals who have come together as the members of the Anthroposophical Society have done remain together wherever they are. They stand by the work with firm courage and inner boldness and do not allow themselves to be led astray no matter what the terrible waves of the present may bring. More often than not, what they bring is not easy. We might experience much that brings up a question for us as to how things should carry on. Don't allow yourselves to be led astray by this either. Do what is yours to do to advance something further in the world, and you will be doing what is right. I could only stay this time for as long as it took to finalize the book, for this book is intended to serve the times. Our friends here will now take it over and ensure its distribution in Switzerland, and precisely because of this work, I hope for a number of reasons to be back again very soon, partly for a reason that is very misunderstood, particularly here in Switzerland. From one quarter or another one hears, quote, So what does this foreigner want here in Switzerland? He should leave us in peace. Our democracy has existed for six hundred years. It is healthy. It is immune against what is happening amongst the abominable nations of Eastern and Central Europe. I am convinced that the best could be done where this could still happen out of free will. If such social ideas as are in my book were to blossom today in Russia, it would happen because the serious external conditions compelled it. And when serious external conditions compel it, it is the same for Central Europe, the same for Germany, the proper impulse is no longer there. 
the proper impulse for precisely these ideas which are trying to bring social well-being to humanity would pertain when they occurred out of freedom on a soil about which one can say the Bolshevists haven't reached us. We still have something of the old conditions. Oh, if an understanding were developed precisely on this soil to develop these ideas out of free will, then Switzerland could become the most blossoming country in Europe. It is equipped for this by its geographical position. It is equipped for a gigantic mission despite its smallness. But it will only fulfill its mission if it accomplishes, out of free will, what neither the eastern nor central countries can accomplish any longer out of free will. For that, they would have had to have acted earlier. And what the western countries will not do because they are not sufficiently predisposed for it. In Switzerland, by contrast, there would be the predisposition. There would be the geographical conditions. Everything would be here. All that is required here is the goodwill for a free human decision. And exactly this requires activity in thinking. This requires thought will. Thought will is what is most lacking in present-day humanity. Thought will develops geographically very well among those people to whom souls come because they wish to be in the mountains. Parenthesis, I mentioned yesterday that souls no longer attach much importance to race. They look far more to the geographical situation. Close parenthesis. Thought will does not develop in regions such as the poem Die Drei Zigeuner, The Three Gypsies, was composed in. It is a very beautiful poem, but it is composed on flatland. What people need today is not flatland mentality, but mountain mentality. That is why a lot could come out of the Swiss mountains. That is why one would like to have a certain basis, a point of departure for something here. And this is why precisely here it seems important to me not to be silent, but to talk about the great needs of the times for as long as this is possible. And I appeal particularly to our friends here in Switzerland to understand the challenge for this enlightenment and to ensure that the challenges of the times pass into the consciousness of the local inhabitants particularly. The more Swiss minds and Swiss hearts are won over to these social ideas, the better it will be for Europe and the world. I say this particularly also to the Swiss members. My dear Swiss friends amongst us, you can take what is foreign and make it Swiss. Then it will no longer be foreign, but Swiss. All these distinctions have only an ephemeral value, after all. I needed to say this today, and I hope you have understood in the right way what I meant regarding these things. I hope that the spirit intended to fill and surround this building will continue to be sustained by the mindset of the members, and that we will meet here again after a short time, bound together by the spirit, which, as it has always been since the beginning, is now to find expression and which cannot be any different for it has tried to realize in itself from the beginning what lies in the challenges of the time. With that, I take my leave for now. This place is intended to have such a spiritual importance that if ever the need were such and I was still able to ride here on a haggard, half-dead old nag in order to do the work, I would not shy away from riding here on a haggard, half-dead old nag. The tasks may present themselves in other places which delay my return. So, despite all that, until we meet again in this spirit, in the spirit, namely, 
that I have described to some small extent in this last meeting and presented to your hearts. The end of Lecture 12, which is the end of these lectures, entitled Past and Future Impulses and Societal Events, Collected Works Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Paul King.